This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. In the summer of 1921, the residents of the Cape Fear region gathered on the Wilmington Riverfront to watch 200 years of their history play out in front of them. Over the course of three days, the production, known as a pageant of the Lower Cape Fear, filtered the story of the region through the lens of some of its greatest moments, including the establishment of Brunswick Town the founding of Wilmington, the rebellion of the American Revolution, and the struggle of the Civil War. The play was heralded as a crowd-sourced creation by the residents of Wilmington, with a few writers and researchers teaming to work up a script overseen by Frederick Henry Koch, a professor of dramatic literature at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. But as much as it was the words of a few, the play itself was the recitation of many, with dozens of local residents playing the roles of some of the notable people who developed or passed through the region. The massive undertaking was performed outside under clear blue skies on June 7th, 8th, and 9th, 1921, with the Cape Fear River flowing freely as its backdrop. It was dedicated to James Sprunt, the noted historian known as the chronicler of the Cape Fear, who also wrote the foreword for the production. A pageant of the Lower Cape Fear was this region's embrace of its heritage, as it cast off the pains of the First World War and looked to the future. Its performance even inspired Sprunt to reflect on his own work, and in doing so, poured his unmistakable voice into a poem that was printed in the Wilmington Morning Star on June 5, 1921. The poem is entitled, If Ghost Should Walk in Wilmington. Unlike his haunted tale, A Colonial Apparition, which we covered on the podcast a few weeks ago, Sprunt's poem shouldn't be read as a traditional ghost story, but rather as a reflective piece on how the Cape Fear's vibrant history, both good and bad, had left its mark on the region. In its many verses, he makes the case that the figurative ghosts of history are always walking among us. It's a long poem, but as we conclude this special Halloween series... I want to read you the first three verses to give you some indication of the way in which Sprunt reckoned with the spirits of the past. No pun intended. If ghosts should walk in Wilmington, as very well they may, a man might find the night here more stirring than the day, might meet with good John Vassal upon an airplane, 
or tackle bloody Blackbeard and hang him o'er again. And loitering here and yonder and jostling to and fro, in every street and alley the sailor folk would go. The blockade runner derelicts emerging from the sands along the shores of Wrightsville Beach that pilot death commands. And all would berth together upon that silent tide. The southern cross, the stars and stripes, should wave there side by side. All colors, creeds, and nations in fashion old and new. If ghosts should walk in Wilmington, as very likely they do. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington. I want to welcome everyone to the final installment in our mini-series, A Cape Fear Unearthed Halloween. To close out this haunting month of stories, I wanted to start off with James Sprunt's poem, because I think it speaks to an inescapable truth about the Cape Fear region, that the influence of its history is around every corner. So for our final October episode, we're going to stick with the grand performance theme of a pageant of the Lower Cape Fear and stop in to what has been one of Wilmington's most popular destinations for more than 150 years, Thalian Hall. Since the Civil War, the massive structure on 3rd Street has been an iconic symbol of the city, welcoming thousands of guests, performers, and dignitaries from all over the world. With that many people, stories, and history coming in and out of its doors, it should come as no surprise that the legendary Performing Arts Center has its fair share of mysterious encounters and spooky specters, all of which we're going to explore. For this special series, we won't have any guests. It's just going to be me, telling you one more story, campfire style. And be sure to stick around after our tale for big news about the podcast's return in 2020. So pull up a log and settle in for the final chapter in a Cape Fear unearthed Halloween as we scare up the spirits of Thalian Hall. The theater community knows a thing or two about superstitions. Centuries of traditions around the performing arts are rich with superstitions meant to protect actors and their productions from everything from bad luck to supposed ghosts. You've probably heard that you never say good luck to a performer, only break a leg. If the dress rehearsal goes terribly, you're probably in for a good opening night. Mirrors are said to be gateways for spirits, but on stage, they just catch light in all the wrong ways. And in the theater, 
don't say Macbeth, for it could conjure the curse of the Shakespearean classic. Some of these are pretty well known, but have you ever heard of the ghost light? The old superstition requires whoever exits the theater last to turn on a single light. It's often a bulb situated on top of a pole at center stage, and it provides some illumination for what would otherwise be a pitch-black theater. Now, there's a practical purpose behind this superstition. To offer whoever opens the theater next a little light so they don't stump their toe, or worse, on the minefield of scenery and props on stage. But it is also intended to ward off the ghosts of production's past. Or, as some variations of the superstition go, to give those ghosts that linger in the theater a little light by which to perform. You may not personally believe in ghosts or superstitions, but many actors and stagehands do. When the theater is considered to be a sanctuary that can nurture a flourishing career or cripple it in a single performance, ascribing to a few superstitions isn't all that crazy. In fact, it's all about respecting the process. And these traditions would have certainly been on the minds of the performers who have taken the stage at Thalian Hall, the world-renowned theater in downtown Wilmington, which still pulls double duty as its signature performing arts center and its city hall. It is named for Thalia, the Greek muse of comedy. Built between 1855 and 1858 by the long-standing Thalian Association, the two-story Greek Revival-style building has been a dominating force, both visually and culturally, since the beginning. In its early years, at a time before the Civil War, when Wilmington was still the largest city in the state, Thalian Hall was its library, government center, and opera house. It was so grand for its time that it could seat 1,000 people, a tenth of Wilmington's population at the time. It would be privately leased out over the years, gaining new flourishes and even a new, albeit temporary, name, the Opera House, given to it around 1867 by John T. Ford, the former owner of Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., where President Abraham Lincoln was shot. As time passed and 20th century development took hold on all sides, Thalian Hall held its ground and remained a stoic player in the present without ever losing sight of the past. Over the decades, thousands have settled into the seats in its performance hall to take in traveling roadshows, musical performances, homegrown productions, and comedic acts. All playing out on an immaculate stage framed by a stunning proscenium arch. For the better part of 160 years, Thalian Hall has been alive with the sounds of laughter, the music of the moment, and the emotions 
earned by its many moving performances. That's why most people don't hesitate in believing that the Performing Arts Center is haunted with memories of the past. And some of those memories are said to have faces. When asked about the many legends of ghosts roaming the building, Tony Rivenbark, who has been the executive director of the Thalian Hall Performing Arts Center for 40 years, acknowledged what a century of performances does to a theater. That's a lot of emotion that has been soaked up in the walls of this building over the years, he said. But exactly what form does that emotional resonance take? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Mysterious sounds, disembodied voices, chilly spots, and eerie feelings abound in every corner of the building. But that's likely to be common for any place with a triple-digit age. The most popular ghostly tale unique to Thalian Hall pertains to three specters who are said to catch performances every now and then. The story goes that from their unique vantage point on stage, actors and performers have spotted two men and a woman watching from the front row of the first balcony. The story goes that from their unique vantage point on stage, actors and performers have spotted two men and a woman watching from the front row of the first balcony. However, most of them didn't pay much mind to the faces looking back at them because, after all, most performers want to see faces in the crowd. Instead, it was usually the custodians or attendants who could always tell when the three spirits had taken in a show. Because, before the theater installed its current spring-activated seats, each one had to be folded up every night after a performance. And yet, on numerous occasions the following morning or during rehearsals, they would find the same three seats folded down. Rivenbark said their stories of seances being held in the theater to try and call out the spirits. And some people claiming to have spotted the trio say they even resemble actors who have performed in the theater over the years. But why they would have hung around all these years is anyone's guess, especially because no one has ever died in the theater. If these are the ghosts of former actors long past their time in the spotlight, maybe their preferred afterlife is spent appreciating the art form from the other side. And who knows, maybe they've even found a way to lend a hand. Another story takes place in the behind-the-scenes bustle of a period production unfolding on stage. As everyone hurries to their various posts between scenes, one of the actresses rushed to her dressing room to change into a gorgeous dress with a bodice that buttoned in the back. She slipped on the dress and got ready to race back to hit her mark, but there was no one around to button her up. She starts to panic, calling out for someone, 
anyone to help and growing more fearful by the second that she won't make it back in time for her scene. Then, out of nowhere, she starts to feel gentle hands on her back, buttoning up her dress just in time for her to flee for the stage. She thought nothing of the assistance until after the show, when she sought to thank the person who helped her in a pinch, only to find out that no one had been around to do so. This realization frightened her, but she was also kind of grateful that someone, whether they were dead or alive, had come to her rescue. While those encounters feature spirits with a fondness for the performing arts and an appreciation of its collaborative nature, could Thalian Hall's unseen inhabitants be from outside the theater community? It's possible. Over the course of the building's many renovations, bones have been found in the soil beneath its foundation on two occasions, as recent as 1988 and 2010. Even more chilling is the fact that even though the two events happened more than two decades apart, the bones were found in virtually the same place, in the back corner of the auditorium. Initially, they uncovered several leg bones, an arm bone, and some teeth. And then, in 2010, they found another arm bone and a jawbone. Rivenbark has said over the years that these had to be there prior to 1803, when Innes Academy was constructed on the site. More likely, they date back hundreds of years, and are from burials conducted by a Native American tribe, which are said to have buried their dead on sand hills, like the one on top of which Thalian Hall was built. Whatever their origins may be, they don't have the same lingering impact as the theater community's dramatic presence on the site. In my personal opinion, it's Rivenbark's own encounter with the possible spirits in the theater that make for its most memorable tale. It happened in 1988 when Thalian Hall was closed for its most substantial renovation in decades, during which a new lobby and a black box theater were added on the Chestnut Street side. For a rare moment in its history, the theater was silent and vacant. Separated temporarily from the stage he had grown so accustomed to since first acting on it in 1966, Rivenbark decided to pay a visit to the building on a Friday afternoon. He turned on the lights, walked into the auditorium, and then paused for a moment. As he stood there, he thought, if there really are ghosts here, they probably don't know what is going on. They might think we've abandoned them. So, he climbed on stage and started talking to them. He told them of the construction and the fundraising efforts, and he lamented that they still needed a million dollars from the state, or the theater would remain closed. He pleaded with them 
to use any influence they might have on the other side to do their part to help keep Dalian Hall's doors open. The more I talked, the more evangelical I became, Rivenbark said. I was preaching a sermon to them right on the stage. As he made his case, a mirror ball hanging in the former sound booth at stage right suddenly moved just enough to catch the lights he had turned on in the theater, projecting a beam of light right out the open door. In telling me this story, it's at this point that Rivenbark said he knows all of this sounds crazy. But in that moment, he felt that whoever was listening to him was letting him know that they had sent a message to the state legislature in Raleigh. As he left, he couldn't bear to leave the history of Thalian Hall shrouded in darkness, and he figured the spirits could use all the power they could get. So he left the lights on and locked the doors behind him. It might not have been the single ghost light that superstition calls for, but it did the trick. The following Monday, Rivenbark got the call that the state legislators had come through with the funding over the weekend. Thalian Hall's renovation campaign could move forward. Whether it was ghosts or just a cog in the political machine finally popping loose, Rivenbark takes from that story a comfort in knowing that whatever or whoever lingers in Thalian Hall isn't malicious, but after the same pursuits of he and his fellow thespians to ensure that the theater lives on. Rivenbark says that he doesn't spend much time dwelling on ghost stories because he doesn't want young people to feel that Thalian Hall is anything other than a safe place of communal creative collaboration. But we also can't deny its dramatic legacy of the unexplained. So, if ghosts should walk in Wilmington, as Sprunt said they might, you won't find much resistance to their presence at Thalian Hall. Just a simple request that they walk in harmony with the living. That's it for the final installment in our mini-series, A Cape Fear Unearthed Halloween. Thank you so much for joining me this month. This will be our last episode of the podcast for 2019. But don't worry, we aren't going anywhere. Starting in January 2020, Cape Fear Unearthed is going year-round. That's right, we will no longer be doing seasons every few months. Instead, we will be premiering a new episode of the show every two weeks throughout the year. And we'll be hosting monthly events that tie to our episodes, including more tours of the region and special meetups. In 2020, Cape Fear Unearthed is only getting bigger. Until then, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter by following our new account at CF Unearthed. Or if you want to reach me directly, you can email me 
at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I'll post all of the updates about when the show will return, and I'll continue to post weekly content, including all of my coverage of the Cape Fear's history. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which will continue to go out every Thursday. During the hiatus, I'll include links to past episodes and any work and research that I'm doing to uncover new stories in the Cape Fear's history. You can sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear on Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or by following me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News Today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode when we return. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until we're back in 2020, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.